This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to another episode of the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I'm Dan Newman. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and brother, Andrew Newman. And first of all, Andrew, how are you doing this evening? I'm good. I'll make it quick. I'm not what people are here for. So all right, I'm there good. you go. So and we are joined by uh, best-selling award-winning author Gary Myers, who's the former NFL columnist for the New York Daily News and Dallas Morning News. He's the author of six books, including the New York Times bestseller Brady versus Manning, incidentally, one of my favorite football books. He was a longtime member of the cast of HBO's Inside the NFL and the Yes Network's This Week in Football. He is a voter for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and he is the author of Once a Giant, a story of victory, tragedy, and life after football, which is the story of the 1986 New York Giants, a team that you've heard mentioned many a time uh, here on our podcast. Uh, Gary, thanks so much for joining us uh, tonight on Hello Old Sports. Hey, guys doing? We're doing well. I was really excited. Um I actually bought this book before it even came out because I was in the store about three days beforehand uh, in Barnes and Noble. And for some reason, Barnes and Noble gets books uh, on the shelves before they actually are on sale. And so I bought it. I was planning to read it. And then we had the opportunity for this um, for this interview. So we're we're really excited to do this. Uh, why don't you sort of just start off and maybe just tell tell us, tell the audience a little bit about the book and uh, what made you decide to do it? Yeah, Um I, I've really been intrigued by um, the whole topic of life after football. You know, having been around the game uh, for over 40 years and starting off when I was, you know, just starting off in this career. And now a lot of the players that I was covering early on are experiencing a lot of the, the challenges and, and fighting a lot of the challenges of life after football, whether it's, you know, mental mental health issues, uh, financial uh, physical, uh, emotional issues. And so I've seen a lot over the years and was trying to decide, you know, how to best present this in, in a book, because I think it's an issue that's really, really important. So um, it came to, I came up with the idea of writing about the 86 Giants, because these guys are the same, are the right demographic age-wise that I, I really wanted to write about. And it's also the most, uh, probably the best and certainly the most popular team of, of the Giants four Super Bowl teams. And, and I already knew a lot of these guys from over the years. So um, I decided to use them as, as a way of, of telling the story, but because I didn't want it to be 300 pages of depressing stories with some of the experiences these guys are going through, I kind of balanced it off with how it became a brotherhood uh, how they become, became such good friends and how 37 years later, and this is the part of the story that really makes it unique. Uh, 37 years later, they're still really good friends and they look after each other as they, as they've grown old together. And I think for me and, and my brother, obviously being giant fans, it was appealing just on the subject matter, but you mentioned sort of not wanting it to be just 300 pages of, of depressing, you know, as football fans, we know this side, but it's, it's, always hard to actually sit down and read a book that's solely about that. Cause there's an, an extent to which 
yeah, we know it, but I don't want to know specifics. So I think the fact that this was able to say, you know, here's the stories of them while they were players and and the week of the Super Bowl and things like that. It wasn't all just this guy committed suicide. Here's his, um, you know, here's what the, what his brain showed. Not that that's not important, but it's hard to, you know, it's hard to get through as a reader or as a fan. So I thought this was a, a great way to balance those things. Yeah. Um Andrew, I, I was trying to find a way to really humanize these players. And, uh, and when guys are playing, and especially on a high-profile team that wins a Super Bowl championship, you, you get to know them as players, but not really as people. And then when their career is over, maybe you keep track of them for a couple of years, or if a guy like Phil Sims stays in the public eye all these years on television, um, people will be able to keep track of them that way. But for the most part, you lose touch with what happens to these people. And um, I thought, um, again, I didn't want to just strictly concentrate on, on some of the hardships they're going through. So I, I tried to show, the, show the, the fun part about football and how they became uh, a real, and it, I know the term is kind of, used loosely, but the, this team really did become a brotherhood. And a lot of teams do when they win a championship, but not many teams stay this close nearly 40 years later. And um, that's a part that came out in, in this book that I think people are really surprised about and is really kind of a heartwarming aspect to a story that really does have a lot of heartbreaking um, examples to it. What is it about this team that you think almost 40 years later is makes them so special, not just in Giants history, but, you know, they are, you know, they are the 61 Yankees. They are the 86 Mets. They are the 68 Jets, 94 Rangers. They are that team in New York in the history. Is it just because they were the first in a very long time or because it was they were the best? But it seems to me, and I don't know if you would agree, this is definitely the team that probably has the biggest place in the heart of the New York sports fan of a Giants team? Oh, Dan, I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, first of all, it was the Giants' first championship in 30 years. So, you know, Giant fans were, were starved for a winner. They didn't want to hear about the, the Jet, Super Bowl three Jets anymore, and they needed a championship and want that championship of their own. And then when you think about this team, Parcells and Belichick, probably the two best coaches were ever on one team at the same time. And if they're not, they're number two to Landry and Lombardi, who are also both with the Giants in, in the late 50s. Then, you know, an outsized figure like Lawrence Taylor, then Phil Sims, Harry Carson, Mark Bavaro, Jim Burt, Joe Morris. You can just go on and on with some of the greatest players in, in Giants history and some of the greatest players in New York sports history. And a few of the cases, some of the greatest players in NFL history. Um, and, and so many characters on this team, so many different personalities that uh, really brought this team together. And um, so there was just a lot of elements to this team that really made it unique. But probably first and foremost is that it was the first, uh, at least of the Super Bowl era for the Giants and their fans. And then, you, you know, you mentioned so many great, iconic teams um, in New York sports. I mean, I would put the 86 Giants up against the 69 Mets, which is, you know, one of my favorite teams ever, you know, the 68, 69, or 69, 70 
Knicks, the 94 Rangers, and, you know, that Jets team, Super Bowl three, and some of those great Yankees teams. But if you were going to look at it individually and try to pick out the greatest team, when you put all those sports together, I can easily make a case that the 86 Giants were the best and the most um, popular of any of those teams. And I think the other three giant teams in one way, shape, or form, the other three championship teams, they've all been underdogs in some way, shape, or form. This was a dominant wire-to-wire mm-hmm. team. This was the best team in the NFL that year. So, you know, Giants fans, the years they've won, it's more been a Cinderella story. You know, Tyree or, you know, Hostetler leading as a backup quarterback. But this is... This is probably the one championship team of the modern era that's been, uh, you know, a dominant team for 14 and two LT MVP, all that type of thing. The other question I wanted to ask is in reading the book, it seems like you talked to to basically everybody. How many of these guys did you actually talk to for the book? It seems like almost everybody. Well, actually, uh, it was probably about half. To oh, tell oh, you the oh. truth. Um, and, and I try. I mean, if I had another year to do the book, I probably could have tracked down the rest of them. But uh, I had made a list prior to um, uh, starting out on my interviews uh, of the guys I definitely wanted to talk to. And I got every one of them. And I tried to get a cross section. Of course, I wanted Lawrence Taylor and Sims and, you know, all the big names. But I also wanted to contact and be able to interview and get their stories of, of some of the guys lesser known or maybe the secondary players or the supporting cast, like a Bobby Johnson, who has an amazing story, uh, Maurice Carthon, um, uh, Pepper Johnson, who hadn't yet emerged as a real significant player. He's a rookie. William Roberts was early in his career. Um, so, and then, you know, Bavaro was just at the, in 86 is when he really emerged as being a, a superstar player. But, um, so I, I again I I, I want to get all the big names because people want to read about you know the A list guys, but I thought this team was made up of more than just that. And so I, I think you know people get a chance, we'll have an opportunity to read about um you know again you know the, the really big name guys, but then some of the guys who made key contributions but weren't necessarily making the headlines in '86. And I think Bavaro, you bring up, and obviously to giant fans and to NFL fans of that era, he's a big name. He's, you know, really seems like the personification of that team, you know, in a lot of ways, the, or at least his public persona. Now, I think you did a great job. The character that was sort of portrayed of him as a guy who wouldn't say three words and, you know, the whole Rambo thing, sort of showing the guy behind that. Um and you obviously knew him a little bit, but were you surprised at all by some of the revelations from him, you know, just the last few years with COVID? Well, well sure. And, and the thing is, he really epitomized the blue collar mentality of that team and of the, you know, of the giant fans. And they could relate to him. As far as being surprised, I mean, sure. Um, I knew before I went up to interview him, in Massachusetts said he had really had a tough time with COVID. They call it long COVID, which I didn't even know existed until I had a chance to talk to him. And, you know, for a guy who had the reputation and it was well-earned of 
like you say, not being able to say or not wanting to say three words. He's certainly capable, but he just wasn't him at the time. He was very withdrawn, and that was all intentional. But the way he opened up to me uh, about such a sensitive time in his life when they think that COVID, the virus, uh, attacked his brain because it was weak, weakened by concussions that he had during the course of his career, which made his brain vulnerable. And so he, he talked about his anxiety and his depression, his paranoia. Uh, and that went on for six or seven months and how, you know, one night he sat in his living room chair and seriously considered uh, ending his life and was sitting there hoping for a heart attack because his, his life was miserable. He talked about his brain being on fire uh, and his emotional side convincing him that, you know, how much trying to convince him that if you're standing on the edge of a cliff, you know, how long before you get a jump? And then his intellectual side saying, no, you, you got this, you'll get through this. You got a great wife and family. You, you can't, you can't do this. So, you know, fortunately his intellectual side, you know, won out, but, you know, so it's a, Mark is one of the most compelling stories in the book. And, but he also told me stories about himself as, you know, I would say a precocious rookie uh, who, <laughs> yeah. who came into the NFL with a, you know, really liking to drink and being a little out of control in training camp early on. And I'm not going to give away the story right now, but I I was shocked to listen to it. It was a very funny story, but, you know, at the same time, I did not have that image of him um, being a big drinker and, and kind of being a guy who got himself in trouble. So um, it, it, Mark, Mark was just, it was great. Uh, he was just great to talk to. Um, and I, I've stayed in touch with him, um, in the year and a half or two years since, you know, I, I spoke to him and, uh, just checking up on him to make sure that the arrow's still pointing up on how his health is doing and, uh, just a great guy. And, you know, people who, you know, fans who read the book and, and, and really were aware of what kind of guy Mark was in 86 will be shocked to see how open and honest he was, you know, just about, like I said, you know, some of the most sensitive of issues um, that, that he just kind of poured his heart out. And I just sat there and I mean, I just listened and I'm throwing some questions in here and there, obviously, but um, he really caught me by surprise about, you know, how bad it really had become for him. And he is just so beloved. And when you think about the fact that he only played six years with the team yeah, and was, you know, really banged up for the last couple. And I mean, you go to a Giants game now, you still see Bavaro jerseys and you still see him. It really is just just incredible just how much staying power a player with it with a really a relatively even for the NFL, a pretty short career, how, you know, quarter of a century more than a quarter of a century later he's just still bo so beloved by giant fans and and that that play where he carried you know half the 49ers defense mm -hmm. in the monday night game uh in san francisco i mean if people were gonna pick out one play from that season if you have to say okay what's the one play you really remember and illustrates what kind of team that was uh, that was the play. They were down 17 nothing at the half. This was early in the third quarter. And and Mark, you know, caught that pass from Sims and turned up field. And 
guys were, were literally on his back, including Ronnie Lott, uh, a Hall of Famer, trying to bring him down. And um, yeah, that 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 play, I think, you know, symbolized that that team. And all like you said, you know, Mark only played here for a half dozen years, but he was a key guy on two championship teams. He basically gave his body to football, um, and he was such a tough guy. Ended his career with the Giants in a really bad knee injury. Um, and Giants didn't pass him on the physical. He didn't want to retire, and he played a year in Cleveland for Belichick and then finished up with a couple of years in Philadelphia. But, listen, I-, I describe him and see if you guys agree with me. Just in terms of being a player, I think he was Gronk before Gronk just without the sideshow. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a great blocker, a tremendous receiver, a really tough guy, uh, all the qualities that today's football fan, you know, equates to uh, or attributes to, to Gronkowski. That was Mark Bavaro in, in the mid to late eighties. I, I would agree with that. And I think even one time when they asked Belichick in a press conference, didn't he say sort of, the same type of thing is that he said, well, I don't want to compare anybody to Mark Bavaro, but he's, yeah, he is that guy. He was, you know, and there really weren't, I mean, there were some, but there really weren't a ton of big time pass catching tight ends in the eighties. There were, you know, some of the hall of fame guys, the Kellen Winslows and those types, but he was definitely sort of a prototype for the Gronks and the guys that came later. Yeah. I mean, Mark, um, um, if he was playing today and he was healthy, he'd have 90 catches a year. The way mm-hmm. the game has changed and the way the tight end has really become such a central part uh, of the passing game. You know, back in those days, even though he was a, a dominant player, it wasn't like he was catching, you know, 80 balls a season. So, um, yeah, he, he might have been like the precursor to – uh, the the production we're seeing now, uh, or the or the prototype that of the tight ends today is what you know the great tight ends are are required to do. That's what Mark Bavaro did uh, for those Giants. And also different from today was that he wouldn't have been featured nearly as much in a Parcells offense if he wasn't also going to block for Joe Morris thirty times a mm-hmm. game, or you know later on. OJ and and Hampton and all those guys. Um, Since we talked about, obviously, Parcells was going to come up um, without getting into specifics, but, you know, the LT aspect obviously being one of it. Parcells definitely seems to strongly push back on the notion that he could have done more or that he not that he couldn't have done more, but that he during the playing days of LT and other guys was indifferent to the drug situation that he truly thought he was doing what he could. Is that, did, did, do you think there's any sort of residual, I don't know if guilt is the right word, or does he firmly believe that he did, you know, what he could have with those guys? Yeah. He really resents, uh, Andrew, he really resents Mm. being labeled as an enabler, uh, Mm. especially with, with Lawrence that, um, he he really did as much as he felt he could to try to help him because he re- not only obviously Taylor was a great player, but Parcells cared about all his players. People didn't realize that, but you know Bill really cared, and 
you know, prior to the NFL instituting the drug testing policies, Parcells, and, and I'm sure the, if the union knew about it at the time, they would have been very, very unhappy with him. But he was drug testing players on his own. Um, he didn't want drugs infiltrating his locker room. And if it wasn't his locker room, not literally, but if meaning if the players were doing drugs, he wanted to know about it to try to first get them help. And then if he couldn't help them, then he was going to get them off the team. But he did try to help them first. And um, by doing that drug testing on his own, it enabled him to to understand what was going on with his team. And um, he had a counselor he was working with that he would send players to. He got players into rehab who needed it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he, I don't think there's a degree of guilt in Bill now whatsoever. I think is he's angry that he's portrayed as a guy that uh, would look the other way if the player could help him win games. And I don't think that was, that was true. Especially because NFL teams, I, I doubt the giants had any more of a drug problem, cocaine specifically than any other team in the 1980s. It's just that they were good. Their best and highest profile player had a few, high profile skirmishes where he, you know, where it came out in the newspapers, but it's not like the New York giants were this uniquely drug addled team compared to any other team or really society writ large during that era. Well, yeah, I mean, I covered the Cowboys um, <laughs> in the eighties and th there was a lot of um, stories about cocaine use and, uh, and drug rings having an in with the team that was never really proven, but um, the nickname for that team was instead of being America's team was South America's team. And um, so you're right. I mean, it, any problems the giants had were not unique to the giants. I mean, it was going on around the league. And then once they started random drug testing, you know, it, it certainly was a deterrent. It didn't, and it still doesn't, make the league clean because if you, if you, uh, if you understand how the drug testing program works, there's a window between the start of the off season program and the beginning of training camp where a player undergoes a annual mandatory, but yet random test during that four month, three month period. Back in the eighties, when they instituted the drug testing in 87, it was done at training camp. So anybody who tested positive then was just stupid because they knew they were going to be tested at the beginning of training camp. Mm -hmm. Now, at least the window is bigger that at any point since beginning like late March until camp end of July. So is that four months uh, they can be tested. But if they do test negative and if there's no reasonable cause to think a player is doing drugs, then he's not tested again until the following year. So to think that players who are testing negative and clear the annual test are then clean for the rest of the year, that's just being naive and unrealistic. Now, I know things have loosened up with marijuana, um, that it's not considered like it was you know, back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, it's legal in many states now. But Cocaine, I mean, I, I can't tell you, I don't, I mean, I don't know this at all, but, you know, to think that players who are doing cocaine 
and they stop for a few months until they get their random test. For anybody who thinks they don't go, they're not back doing it as soon as they know they can't be tested again. That's just that's just not real. Uh, again, I don't know how many players this pertains to, but I would have to think that once you get your you know quote unquote get out get out of jail free card, and they say you know you you tested negative that and you're not and they know they're not going to be tested again until the following spring. You know they can pretty much do whatever they want. And the only reason they will be tested again is if they show up two hours late for a meeting with their eyes bloodshot or, or, you know, whatever signs they might be looking for that a player is doing drugs, then they'll have reasonable cause to test them. But, you know, absent that, you know, they're not, they don't get tested again. So um, I think the league is do you know, other than having year round random testing, which the union would never allow to allow, you know, they do it with steroids, but not with street drugs um, until you have year round random testing. There's no way to really, um, clean everything up. Talk to us a little bit more about Parcells and the relationship he's had with those players, both then and now, because that to me was one of the most really fascinating and frankly touching parts of the book. Yeah, Dan, um, he, he had a, a love hate relationship with his players simply because he drove them so hard physically, you know, in those days, two day practices and pads were, a normal thing around the league for the most part, except in San Francisco where Bill Walsh ran a country club and his players responded to it. But, you know, Parcells never missed an opportunity to put his players in pads in training camp and during the season as well. So he knows that um, he was very physically demanding. Now, you know, spinning forward all these years and Bill's 82 years old, and he's done very well for himself financially. And he knows that a lot of these players have been suffering. You know, you talk about guilt and I can't, I'm not putting words in his mouth whatsoever, but clearly some of his, because his practice was so tough and he was so demanding and the game is so tough that some of the issues that his players today are suffering are a result from playing football, uh, in that during that period of time, whether it would have so many things would have happened with a coach who was not as hard driving as Parcells, we'll never know the answer to that. But Bill does feel a sense of responsibility and obligation to help these players who who are in financial need, you know, for either you know medical bills or attorney bill, or if they have to make a mortgage payment. He knows when they come to him that he's the last line of defense. Because who would ever want to go to their former boss and say, you know, can you help me out? I'm short, you know, paying the mortgage this month. Um, but Bill feels that all these players sacrificed so much by playing for him and allowed him to accomplish everything he's accomplished in his life, including being a Hall of Fame coach, that if the way he can help them out today is by giving them advice, and he's still a life coach for the most part, and by also helping them out financially, that's what he's going to do. So he, he told me that over the years, he's loaned out $4 million to a to, $4 million total to about 20 different players and with no expectation of, of being repaid. And, you know, if they want to pay him back and they're in position to pay him back, certainly that's fine. But it's not like he's going to send a, a collection agency after his former players and He's just happy to help, but in a way sad 
that he has that that he's in that these players are in position that they have to come to him for help. And one thing I think this paints him in a, in a totally different position of of the perception of Bill Parcells. He, he has become a, a, a I'm not going to say become compassionate because I think he was always compassionate, but he's now outwardly compassionate and has become like a fatherly figure to a lot of these players to the point that a lot of them call him on his birthday and they call him on Father's Day, which I think is extremely unusual. Yeah, I think we, my brother and I have talked about this with Vince Lombardi before, but I think it applies to Parcells too, where the sh- sort of history has retroactively made it seem like all these guys did was just yell and scream at their players. And it's like, obviously, to achieve that level of success and to have the, you know, the kind of bond for lack of a better word with these guys. Now there's more to it than just what the five second, you know, sideline clip show him screaming at Sims and things like that. So while, while I'm sure he wasn't looking to cultivate that, especially in public during those times, you know, it, it was obviously always, at least it was more than just him. You know, the, 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 public persona at the time of him as this hard ass tuna, you know, sarcastic guy to his players. Yeah. I mean, you have to remember these guys are around each other in those days from the mm-hmm. middle of July. Um, you know, Giants were making the playoffs a bunch in those years, um, starting the mid eighties. So the season would go to mid January and then Super Bowl year years until the end of January. So they're around each other so much between the practice field and the meeting rooms and the dining hall at training camp that relationships develop. And, 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 you know, Bill always felt, you know, very close to his players. He had a bunch of guys, you know, they were known as Parcells guys, uh, you know, George Martin and Lawrence Taylor and Phil Sims um, and Lawrence to a certain extent, but really just Martin and Carson and, and Sims that, if he sensed something was wrong in the locker room, rather than going in and demanding it be fixed, he would go to one of those three guys and say, you guys fix it. This is your team. You guys fix it. Get their heads back on straight, or we got to make sure we're not doing this or that anymore. Um, Bill, and I've been around a lot of coaches. You know, I covered the league for over 40 years. Bill, by far, is the best one of having this finger on the pulse of his locker room and and understanding what motivates players individually, not necessarily as a team, but individually and, and who he can pick on to light a fire on them and who he needed to put his, his arm around their shoulder um, to motivate them. He was the best button pusher ever. And, and that's what really made him special is that he really did understand these guys. And um, he, he would go to Sims before a practice and say, today, you know, felt today I'm going to be all over you. I don't care what you do. If you complete every pass, I'm still going to scream at you that it could have been better. Because he was just trying to send a message to a team, his team. Like, if I can, if I can yell at Sims, one of the best players on the team, um, you guys are next. So you you, you better pick up your game, otherwise I'm going to be in your face. And there were times that Bill did not warn warn Phil about that. And so when he was screaming at him, he really did mean it. And 
Phil told me stories that he used to go home a nervous wreck because the practices were harder than the games. He was afraid to make a mistake because Parcells would start screaming at him. And when you th- and I think it probably took Phil a while to realize this, but you know, growing up, his dad, Phil's dad was was never one to pass out compliments. If Phil hit three home runs in a baseball game and came home and told his father, because his father very rarely came to his games, he said, Yeah, did you really hit it or do you just, it was a kind of a pop-up over the fence? You know, and he would never make Phil feel good about himself. And and then when he had a deal with Parcells, he saw a lot of the same qualities in it. But I think at that point in his life, he understood what Parcells' motivation was. And and Bill obviously was not his father. Growing up and his dad wouldn't pat him on the back, it was was very hurtful. But Phil acquired the thick skin that allowed him to endure all those years of Parcells yelling at him. I want to touch on one more thing uh, as we get ready to wrap up here. Um, Gary Myers, again, thank you so much for joining us. One of my favorite parts of the book actually wasn't even about the players. It was, I think, towards the end. And I think maybe people don't realize, even maybe, you know, somewhat serious giant fans, the team and the organization was a in a really bad place and also a really strange place sort of during this time period and especially immediately prior to it. And let's say the 10 years or so before yeah. and the ownership situation with the Maras is something you dive into a little bit. And I, it was crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Remember the giants didn't make the playoffs in 1964 beginning in 64 and then they made him again in 1981. So they went 17 seasons in there without making the playoffs. And, and the 78 season was, um, was just a mess. That was a year of the fumble and uh, fans uh, burning tickets outside the stadium. Uh, a fan rented an airplane and flew it over giant stadium saying, you know, 15 years lousy football. We've had enough, but that was really the agent for change as they wound up with George Young as the general manager. But you had Wellington Mara and Tim Mara, uncle and nephew, each owned 50% of the team, and they really had no use for each other. So it was really a dysfunctional organization, and it all came to a head after the 78 season. And I lived through this because I covered that team for the Associated Press. It was It was amazing. Uh, there was a press conference that was held when they couldn't decide on a coach or a general manager or whether to hire a coach first or whether to hire a general manager first. So Tim Mara calls a press conference in which he used it as a forum to rip his uncle. And um, and then Wellington spoke and defended himself. And it, it was like the War of the Roses playing right, right, playing out right in front of us. It was humiliating for the organization, this family fight that um, was there for everybody to see. It it, it had to be one of the low points in the history of the franchise, but uh, it it did lead eventually, and it's a long story how it happened, but it led eventually to George Young coming in there and uh, being made the general manager and being given all the football power 
and he was the liaison between Wellington and Tim. Weekly Wednesday meetings, they kind of spoke to each other through Wellington. And, and George Young is probably one of the most single most important people in the history of the Giants franchise because of how he got it back on track. I mean, he did a lot of things that you know were upsetting to Parcells and players and contract negotiations and things like that. He was a really tough guy. But uh, without George Young at that period of time, uh, who knows when the Giants would have gotten straightened out. But uh, I think, you know, fans who read the story that aren't aware of what was how bad it was in the late 70s, uh, much worse than any of the New York teams are going through now or even in recent years. Uh, I think the fans are going to be shocked at how, how bad it was. Um, now I know on the field this year, and the last 10 years haven't been very good for the Giants. But um, just combine that, because the team was is that was that bad um, in the 70s, and combine that with an organization that was completely dysfunctional. And those years were worse than what's going on now. At least Giant, you know, I tell Giant fans this, who are complaining about how bad it's been since the second Super Bowl victory against the Patriots. I say that, Beginning in 1986, when the Giants won their first championship, they've won four. And only the Patriots have won more during that period of time. Giants have won one Super Bowl in a decade of the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and the 2010s. Now, I know the the way things are going in the 2020s, it doesn't appear one's going to be here, but it's early in the decade still, right? we still got eight more (laughs) years or seven more years after this, so. When you think about, you know, the chance that Giant fans have had to celebrate four championships, those who have been around for all four, those who have just been around for the last couple, um, and then you compare that to the teams that haven't gotten a sniff of it, you know, I, I say, you know, relax, you don't have that much to complain about. Yeah, I've recently moved to Connecticut, not far from the Yale Bowl, and I drove yeah. by there a few months ago, and I was like, they were in Siberia in every way, shape, and form yeah. from a football standpoint in the, in the mid-70s. So yeah. um, the young thing, you you bring a perspective to it and clear up a few things that I think a lot of people would be interested in, in terms of exactly what happened uh, to bring him in as the as the Giants general manager in 78. So, Right. Yeah, it was actually uh, Valentine's Day, 1979. 79, excuse me. Yeah, he was at, um, it was February 14th, 1979. They had a press conference at Gallagher Steakhouse in Midtown Manhattan, right in kind of the middle of the theater district. And um, that was a, that was a real turning point for the organization. And a turning point for the league because they made, made it so that you have to have a, a managing owner at this point so you don't have the circus the Giants had in the 70s. So. Right, somebody's got to have, it used to be that, because of the 50-50 ownership, they said somebody had to have 51% after the Giants. But mm-hmm. what, what eventually happened was somebody had to be designated, even if you didn't have 50% ownership, 51% ownership, if the most somebody had was 40%, they had to be designated as having the vote mm-hmm. um, of the organization. So, yeah, that was uh, the impetus for change in that regard as well. Well. We, we've really enjoyed this, Gary. Thank you so much. We both really enjoyed the book. Uh, if you're a fan of not just of, of the Giants, but of that era in professional football, and really, frankly, if you're interested in sort of a, an insight into what players go through and what their lives are like while they're playing and then, yeah, you know, decades after with, 
de- decades afterwards on both the physical and the the emotional side and also the camaraderie. I think that can't be underestimated. That's, you know, there, there's some bad, but then there's also some good. So uh, the book is called uh, Once a Giant, A Story of Victory, Tragedy and Life After Football. The author is Gary Myers. He's been our guest here on Hello Old Sports. And Gary, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks so much, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Take care. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.